Chapter Four of the Plan of Salvation by B. B. Warfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Universalism. The evangelical note is formally sounded by the entirety of organized Protestantism. That is to say, all the great Protestant bodies in their formal official confessions agree in confessing the utter dependence of sinful man upon the grace of God alone for salvation and in conceiving this dependence as immediate and direct upon the Holy Spirit, acting as a person and operating directly on the heart of the sinner. It is this evangelical note which determines the peculiarity of the piety of the Protestant churches. The characteristic feature of this piety is a profound consciousness of intimate personal communion with God the Saviour, on whom the soul rests with immediate love and trust, obviously this piety is individualistic to the core and depends for its support on an intense conviction that god the lord deals with each sinful soul directly and for itself nevertheless in odd contradiction to this individualistic sentiment which informs all truly evangelical piety there exists in protestantism a widespread tendency to construe the activities of god looking to salvation not individualistically but universally to assert in one word that all that god does looking towards the salvation of sinful man he does not two or four individual men but two or four all men alike making no distinctions this is the characteristic contention of what we know as evangelical arminianism and of evangelical lutheranism and is the earnest conviction of large bodies of protestants gathered in many communions under many names on the face of it it would seem that if it is god the lord and he alone who works salvation by an operation of his grace immediately upon the heart which is the core of the evangelical confession and if all that god does looking to the salvation of men he does to and for all men alike which is the substance of the universalistic contention why then all men without exception must be saved this conclusion it would seem can be escaped only by relaxing in one way or another the stringency of one or the other of the assumed premises it must either be held that it is not god and god alone who works salvation but that the actual enjoyment of salvation hangs at a decisive point upon something in man or something done by man and then we have fallen out of our evangelicalism into the mere naturalism of autosoterism or it must be held that god's gracious activities looking to salvation are not after all absolutely universal in their operation and then we have fallen away from our asserted universalism or else it would seem inevitable that we should allow that all men are saved consistent evangelicalism and consistent universalism can coexist only if we are prepared to assert the salvation by god's almighty grace of all men without exception accordingly there has always existed a tendency in those evangelical circles which draw back more or less decisively from ascribing a thoroughgoing particularism to god in the distribution of his grace to assume the actual salvation of all men provided that is that their sense of the complete dependence of the sinner upon god for salvation is strong and operative among the condemnations of errors included in the summa confessionis et conclusionum of the synod held at debrecen on february twenty fourth fifteen sixty seven we find a clause directed against what are there called the holo predestinari which runs as follows the holy scripture refutes by these reasons also the holo predestinari 
that is, those who imagine that the whole world is elected, and that a universal predestination follows from the universal promise, and teaches that predestination is of a few, and is particular, and that the number of the elect is certain, and their catalogue extends to their very hairs, for the very hairs of your head are all numbered. But it does not at all follow from this doctrine that God is partial or a respecter of persons." who these sixteenth-century holopredestinari were, we have not been careful to inquire, but certainly, from that time to this, there have never lacked those who, in the interests of protecting God from the charge of partiality or respective persons, have been inclined to hold that he has chosen all men to salvation, and through his almighty grace brings them all to that blessed goal." The most recent and perhaps the most instructive instances of this tendency are provided by two divines of the Church of Scotland of our own day, Dr. William Hasty, late Professor of Divinity in the University of Glasgow, and Dr. William P. Patterson, now holding the Chair of Divinity, the Chair of Chalmers and Flint in the University of Edinburgh. In his admirable Crowell Lectures on the Theology of the Reformed Churches in its Fundamental Principles, Dr. Hasty announces that the word of the eternal hope seems to me the latest message of the Reformed theology, and Dr. Patterson takes up the hint and enlarges on it in the excellent chapter on the testimony of the Reformed churches included in his Baird lecture on the rule of faith. Dr. Patterson considers that Calvinism contains in itself elements which are mutually repulsive in its doctrine of everlasting punishment on the one hand and its doctrine of election and irresistible grace on the other. Relief might no doubt be had when thought rebels against making God responsible for the everlasting punishment of some by a doctrine of reprobation, by taking refuge in an Arminian or semi-Arminian type of thought. This relief would be purchased, however, at the too dear cost of abandonment of consinity of thought and of falling away from the faithfulness to the evangelical principle which is the core of Christianity." There remains then, according to Dr. Patterson, no other way but to discard the doctrine of everlasting punishment, and to resolve reprobation into a temporary lack of privilege and of spiritual attainment. And he somewhat complacently remarks that it is a curious circumstance that, while Calvinism has become unpopular, chiefly because of its identification with a grim and remorseless doctrine of eternal punishment, it is the only system which contains principles— in its doctrines of election and irresistible grace, that could make credible a theory of universal restoration. What Dr. Patterson says in these last words is true enough, but it is true only because, when rightly considered, Calvinism, with its doctrines of election and irresistible grace, is the only system which can make credible the salvation of any sinner, since in these doctrines alone are embodied in its purity the evangelical principles that salvation is from God alone, and from him only in the immediate working of his grace, whether this grace in God's unspeakable mercy is granted to some men only, or is poured out on all men alike, is a different question to be determined on its own grounds, and this question is certainly not to be facilely resolved by the simple assumption that God's mercy must be poured out on all alike, since otherwise not all men can be saved. The fundamental presupposition of such an assumption is no other than that God owes all men salvation, that is to say that sin is not really sin and is to be envisaged rather as misfortune than as ill-desert. That it is this low view of sin which is really determinative of the whole direction of Dr. Patterson's thought at this point, 
becomes immediately apparent upon attending to the terms of his argument. Quote, it has been customary to say, he reasons, that as there would have been no injustice in the punishment of all guilty beings, there can be none in the punishment of some guilty beings out of the number. Those who are saved are saved because of the mercy of God, while those who are lost perish because of their sins. This is as true as to say that those sick persons who are saved by the skill and devotion of a physician owe their lives to him, and that those that die perish of their own diseases. But in that case the physician does not escape censure, if it can be shown that it was in his power to have treated and saved those who died. It is therefore impossible to say that the doctrine of the divine love is not affected, since on Calvinistic principle it is in the power of God to deal with all in the same way in which he has dealt with the rest. For, ex hypothesi, it is in the power of God, in virtue of the principle of irresistible grace, to save even the worst, and, if nevertheless there is a part of the human race which is consigned to everlasting punishment, it seems to be only explicable on the assumption that the divine love is not perfect, because it is not an all-embracing and untiring love. End quote. Is it then inconceivable that the divine hand might be held back from saving all by something other than lack of power? The whole matter of the ill desert of sin and the justice of God, responding in hot indignation to this ill desert, is left out of Dr. Patterson's reasoning. If the case were really as he represents it, and men in their mere misery, appealing solely to God's pity, lay before the divine mind, it would be inexplicable that he did not save all. The physician, who, having the power to treat and cure all his patients, arbitrarily discriminates between them, and contents himself with ministering to some of them only, would justly incur the reprobation of men. But may not the judge, having the mere power to release all his criminals, be held back by higher considerations from releasing them all? It may be inexplicable why a physician in the case supposed should not relieve all, while the wonder may well be in the case of the judge, rather, how he can release any. The love of God is, in its exercise, necessarily under the control of his righteousness, and to plead that his love has suffered an eclipse because he does not do all that he has the bare power to do, is in effect to deny him a moral nature. The real solution to the puzzle that is raised with respect to the distribution of the divine grace is, then, not to be sought along the lines either of the denial of the omnipotence of God's grace with the Arminians, or of the denial of the reality of his reprobation with our neo-universalists, but in the affirmation of his righteousness. The old answer is, after all, the only sufficient one. God, in his love, saves as many of the guilty race of man as he can get the consent of his whole nature to save. Being God and all that God is, he will not permit even his ineffable love to betray him into any action which is not right. And it is therefore that we praise him and trust him and love him. For he is not part God, a God here and there, with some but not all the attributes which belong to true God. He is God altogether, God through and through, all that God is and all that God ought to be. Meanwhile, it is not the consistent universalism that demands the actual salvation of all sinners, which has been embraced by the mass of universalizing Protestants. For one thing, the scriptures are too clear to the contrary to permit the indulgence of this pleasant dream. It is all too certain that all men are not saved, but at the last day there remain the two classes of the saved and the lost, each of which is sent to the eternal destiny which belongs to it. 
the great problem requires to be faced by universalizing evangelicalism therefore of how it is god and god alone who saves the soul and all that god does looking towards the saving of the soul he does to and for all men alike and yet all men are not saved their attempts to solve this problem have given us the doctrinal constructions known as evangelical lutheranism and evangelical arminianism both of which profess to combine and express evangelicalism and an express universalism and yet to provide for the diverse issues of salvation and damnation that these systems have succeeded in solving this let us say it frankly insoluble problem we of course do not believe and the element in the problem which suffers in the forcible adjustments which they propose is in both cases the evangelical element but it is nevertheless to be frankly recognized that both systems profess to have found a solution and are therefore emphatic in their professions of both a pure evangelicalism and a complete universalism in the operations of god looking to salvation it will be worth our while to make this clear to ourselves in doing so however we shall choose statements from which we may learn something more of the spirit and points of view of these great systems than the particular facts which are more immediately engaging our attention how deeply embedded the evangelical conviction is in the consciousness of evangelical arminianism we may learn from an instructive enunciation of it by dr joseph agar beat this enunciation occurs in a context in which dr beat is with some heat repelling the doctrine of unconditional election Quote, this terrible error he says prevalent a century ago is but an overstatement of the important gospel truth that salvation is from the earliest turning to god to final salvation altogether a work of god in man and a merciful accomplishment of a purpose of god before the foundation of the world in our rejection of this doctrine of unconditional election and predestination we must remember that salvation from the earliest good desires to final salvation is the accomplishment of a divine purpose of mercy formed before the foundation of the world End quote. in rejecting the doctrine of universal election dr beat is thus careful to preserve the evangelicalism which he recognizes lies at its centre and thus he gives us a definition of evangelicalism from the wesleyan standpoint it proves to be just that all the saving process is from god and that all the power exerted in saving the soul is god's it may please us in passing to ask whether this evangelicalism is really separable from the doctrine of unconditional election from which dr beat wishes to separate it and to note that he himself appears to recognize that in the minds of some at least the two must go together but what it particularly behooves us to observe now is the emphasis with which as a wesleyan dr beat bears his testimony to the general evangelical postulate whether he gives validity to this postulate in all his thinking is of course a different matter from the lutheran side the consciousness of the evangelical principle is equally prominent indeed the evangelical lutheran is very apt to look upon evangelicalism as his own peculiar possession and to betray a certain measure of surprise when he finds it in the hands of others also a j haller writing in zahn and burger's magazine expresses himself in the following emphatic language Quote, that salvation is not acquired by man by means of any activity of his own but is given him by god's grace that i cannot believe in jesus christ my lord or come to him of my own power or reason but the holy spirit has called me enlightened sanctified and preserved me 
this is assuredly the alpha and omega of all evangelical belief and is not denied even by either calvinists or methodists End quote. the purity of this evangelical confession must be frankly recognized even though we cannot avoid cherishing misgivings whether it is permitted to condition all the thought of its author misgivings which are indeed immediately justified when we find him going on to speak of regeneration and speaking of it after a fashion which is in spirit less evangelical than sacerdotal and indeed is not untouched by the naturalism which usually accompanies this type of sacerdotalism he is sure that regeneration is monogistic but also that it is the effect of baptism as its producing cause and he is very much concerned to defend this conception from the charge of magical working Quote, it might be called magical he remarks if it were maintained that men were completely transformed in regeneration with no subsequent demand made upon them for any ethical self-determination that however an absolutely new power is created in them by god the saving or condemning action of which depends on their subsequent or contemporary determination entscheidung this has as little to do with magic as the belief that in the lord's supper christ's body and blood are certainly and truly given for blessing to some for judgment to others a passage like this reveals the difficulty a lutheran who wishes to abide by his official confession has in giving effect to his evangelical profession he may declare that all the power exerted in saving the soul is from god but this is crossed by his sacerdotal consciousness that grace is conveyed by the means of grace otherwise not the grace of regeneration for example is conveyed ordinarily some say only by baptism and this grace of regeneration is the monogistic operation of god even so however it cannot be said that the effect is all of god for in the first place whether it takes effect at all is dependent on the attitude of the recipient he cannot cooperate with god in producing it but he can fatally resist and therefore bayer carefully defines god produces in the man who is baptized and who does not resist the divine grace the work of regeneration or renovation through the sacrament in the very act itself hoc acto ipso and then in the second place whether this gift of regeneration proves a blessing or a curse to the recipient depends on how he takes it and deals with it an absolutely new power is created in him by god says haller the action of which whether for blessing or cursing is dependent on the subject's subsequent or even already presently operative decision this carries with it naturally what is here covered up that this self-determination of the recipient is his natural self-determination for if it were itself given in the power communicated in regeneration then it were inconceivable that it could act otherwise than for blessing whether man is saved or not depends therefore in no sense on the monogistic regeneration wrought by god in his baptism it depends on how man receives this new power communicated to him and how he uses it and thus we are back on the plane of pure naturalism we may more than question therefore whether the cherished evangelicalism of the arminian and lutheran constructions is not more theoretical than practical though meanwhile we must recognize that they at least postulate the evangelical principle in theory it is however the universalistic note which is the characteristic note of these constructions as professor henry c sheldon of boston university declares our contention is for the universality of the opportunity of salvation as against an exclusive and unconditioned choice of individuals to eternal life 
there is to be noted in this declaration one the conscious stress on universalism as the characteristic note of arminianism and two the consequent recognition that all that god does looking toward salvation is to afford an opportunity of salvation so that what is actually contended is not that god does not save some only but that he really saves none he only opens a way of salvation to all and if any are saved they must save themselves so inevitable is it that if we assert that all that god does looking to salvation he does to and for all alike and yet that not all are saved we make all that he does fall short of actual salvation no one must receive more than he who receives the least perhaps however the essential universalistic note of the whole arminian construction never received a stronger assertion than in the creed of the evangelical union body the so-called morrisonians the very reason of the existence of which is to raise protest against the unconditionality of election its positive creed it itself sums up in what it calls the three universalities the love of god the father in the gift and sacrifice of jesus to all men everywhere without distinction exception or respect of persons the love of god the son in the gift and sacrifice of himself as a true propitiation for the sins of all the world the love of god the holy spirit in his personal and continuous work of applying to the souls of all men the provisions of divine grace certainly if god is to be declared to love all men alike the son to have made propitiation for the sins of all men alike and the holy spirit to have applied the benefits of that propitiation to all men alike nothing is left but to assert that therefore all men alike are saved or else to assert that all that god can do for sinful man cannot avail to save him and he must just be left to save himself and where then is our evangelicalism with its great affirmation that it is god the lord and he alone with his almighty grace who saves the soul the lurid light is thrown upon the real origin of these vigorous assertions of the universalism of god's saving activities by some remarks of a sympathetic historian in accounting for the rise of the morrisonian sect Quote, of the movement now to engage our attention he remarks nothing is truer than that it was the genuine offspring of its age during the thirties of the last century the legislatures of our country were made to recognize the rights of man as they had never done before in politics the long night of privilege was far spent and the dawn of a new age was beginning to appear brotherhood equality and fair play were clamoring loudly at every closed door and refusing to be turned away a corresponding claim quite independent of politics was being made in the name of christian theology here also it was demanded that doors of privilege be thrown open freedom for all food for all education for all and salvation for all were now coming to be the national watchwords End quote. words could scarcely be chosen which would more sharply present the demand for the three universalities as the mere clamouring of the natural heart for the equal distribution of the goods of the other life as of this as in other words but the religious aspect of the levelling demand which has filled our modern life the cry give us all an equal chance may have its relative justification when it is the expression of the need of men perishing under the heel of vested privilege but what shall we say of it when it is but the turbulent self-assertion of a mob of criminals assailing a court of justice whence is dispensed not chances to escape just penalties but wisely directed clemency having in view all rights involved 
surely the evil desert of sin the just government of god and the unspeakable grace of salvation are all fatally out of mind when men reason as to the proper procedure of god in bringing sinners to salvation by the aid of analogies derived from the levelling politics of the day shall we not fix it once for all in our minds that salvation is the right of no man that a chance to save himself is no chance of salvation for any and that if any of the sinful race of man is saved it must be by a miracle of almighty grace on which he has no claim and contemplating which as a fact he can only be filled with wondering adoration of the marvels of the inexplicable love of god to demand that all criminals shall be given a chance of escaping their penalties and that all shall be given an equal chance is simply to mock at the very idea of justice and no less at the very idea of love the universalism of all the divine operations looking to salvation is as vigorously asserted in the lutheran scheme as in the arminian but with if possible even less logical success on the supposition that is that the evangelical principle of dependence on god alone for salvation is to be preserved indeed the leaven of sacerdotalism taken over by lutheranism from the old church in its doctrine of the means of grace from the first fatally marred even the purity of its universalism transmuting it into a mere indiscrimination which is something very different and has among the modern lutherans given rise to very portentous developments the old lutheranism alleging that the honour of god required that he should do all that he does looking to the salvation of man to and for all men alike asserted that therefore christ has died to take away the sins of the whole world and provision having been made in the means of grace for the effective application of this sacrifice to all men these means of grace with the mind especially on the proclamation of the gospel in which they culminate have actually been conveyed to all men without exception of course it is not in point of fact true that the gospel has been actually proclaimed to all men without exception and an effort was accordingly made to cover up the manifest falsity of the assertion by substituting for it the essentially different proposition that at three historical stages namely at the time of adam at the time of noah and at the time of the apostles the gospel has been made known to all men then living and it is added if it became universal in those three generations then it has also come indirectly to their successors. The futility of this expedient to conceal the circumstance that in point of fact the gospel has not actually been conveyed to every single man who has ever lived, and nothing less than this can satisfy the demands of the case, is too manifest to require pointing out, and we cannot be surprised that the contention itself has ceased to be made. More recent orthodox theologians in our church, the historian, the norwegian divine lars nielsen daler goes on to tell us say simply that the universality of the call is a necessary presupposition a postulate which must be assumed on the ground of the testimony of scripture regarding god's universal saving will on the one hand and of the scripturally established truth on the other that this saving will cannot be realized for the individual unless god's call actually reaches him but how this happens we cannot say for it is a fact that at the present day it has only reached comparatively few or at most a minority of mankind thus professor johnson writes the universality of this call of grace we must in opposition to every particularistic view of it maintain as a postulate of the faith even if we are unable to show how it actually does reach every individual it is an unsolved mystery 
the lutherans therefore in attempting both to tie saving grace to the means of grace and to give it an actual universal diffusion have brought themselves into a difficulty at this point from which the arminians who make the universality of the sacrificial work of christ and of the consequent gift of sufficient grace independent of all earthly transactions so that men are all born in a state of redemption and grace are free the ultimate solution which has been found by modern lutheranism in which Dahler himself concurs consists in the invention of a doctrine of the extension of human probation into the next world the famous doctrine miscalled that of a second probation for it is not a doctrine of a second probation for any man but only the doctrine that every man that lives must have the gospel presented winningly to him if not in this life then in the life to come by the invention of this doctrine the lutherans have proved themselves for the first time with a true universalism of grace there is confessedly no direct biblical support for the doctrine it is simply a postulate of the universalism of god's will of salvation in connection with the confinement of grace to the means of grace the scriptures teach that no man can be saved without a knowledge of jesus christ in his saving work this is transmuted into its opposite that no man can be lost without a knowledge of christ in his saving work and then in the interests of this proposition provision is made for every man to be brought face to face with the offer of the gospel under favourable circumstances if not in this world then in the next no doubt some such invention was necessary if the lutheran premises were to be sustained but one would think that the necessity for such an invention in order to sustain these premises were a sufficient indication that these premises were best abandoned having by this invention avoided the fact that the provision for salvation is in point of fact not universal the lutherans have by no means escaped from their difficulties they are faced with the even greater difficulty common to them and the arminians of accounting for the failure of god's grace now safely conveyed to all men to work the salvation of all men and here there is no outlet but to that of the arminians namely to bring in surreptitiously the discredited naturalism and to attribute the difference in the effects of grace to men's differences in dealing with grace lutherans have their own way however of introducing this naturalism they are emphatic that man being dead in sin cannot cooperate with the grace of god a difficulty got over by the arminianism by the postulation of a graciously restored ability for all men earned for them by the sacrifice of christ and applied to them automatically but they suppose that though dead in sin man can resist and successfully resist almighty grace resistance is however itself an activity and the successful resistance of an almighty recreative power is a pretty considerable activity for a dead man it all comes back therefore to the pelagian ground that at the decisive point the salvation of man is in his own power men are saved or men are not saved according to natural differences in men thus the grace of god is fundamentally denied and salvation is committed in the last analysis to man himself the upshot of the whole matter is that the attempt to construe the gracious operations of god looking to salvation universally inevitably leads by one path or another to the wreck of the evangelical principle on the basis of which all protestant churches or rather let us say of the supernaturalistic principle on the basis of which all christian churches professedly unite whether this universalism takes a sacerdotal form or a form which frees itself from all entanglement with earthly transactions 
it ends always and everywhere by transferring the really decisive factor in salvation from god to man this is not always clearly perceived or frankly admitted sometimes however it is professor w f Steele of the university of denver for example clearly perceives and frankly admits it to him there can be no talk of almighty grace occupying a position which is practically whatever we may say of it theoretically indistinguishable from the bumptious naturalism of mr w e henley the first article of his creed is a hearty belief in the almightiness of man in the sphere of moral choices when one says he tells us i believe in god the father almighty he means it with reserve for in the domain of man's moral choices under grace man himself is almighty according to god's self-limitation in making man in his image and after his likeness god himself he goes on to declare has a creed which begins i believe in man almighty in his choices obviously a man in this mood is incapable of religion the very essence of which is the sense of absolute dependence on god and is altogether inhibited from evangelicalism which consists in humble resting on god and god alone for salvation instead of the great gloria soli deo ringing in his heart he proudly himself seizes the helm and proclaims himself apart from god the master of his own destiny moralism has completely extruded religion did not luther have precisely the like of this in mind when he satirically describes the moralists of his day in these striking words here we are always wanting to turn the tables and do good of ourselves to that poor man our lord god from whom we are rather to receive it the antipathy which is widely felt to the fundamental evangelical postulate which brings the soul into immediate contact with god and suspends all its health on the immediate operations of god finds an odd illustration in albrecht richer's teaching that the direct object even of justification is not the individual but the christian society and that it is passed on to the individual only as the result of his taking place in the christian fellowship and sharing in its life this is of course only another and very much poorer way of asserting the principle of the general universalistic construction god does not in any stage of the saving process deal directly with individuals he has always and everywhere the mass in view and it is the part of the individual himself by his own act to lay hold of the salvation thus put at the general disposal how different luther with his it is not needful for thee to do this or that only give the lord god the glory take what he gives thee and believe what he tells thee the issue is indeed a fundamental one and it is closely drawn is it god the lord that saves us or is it we ourselves and does god the lord save us or does he merely open the way to salvation and leave it according to our choice to walk in it or not the parting of the ways is the old parting of the ways between christianity and autosoterism certainly only he can claim to be evangelical who with full consciousness rests entirely and directly on god and god alone for his salvation End of chapter four